Hello, everybody, and welcome back to You Can't Win. This is Tom here, and you're listening to part three of our series on Muslim history. Let's review some key points that we've covered so far. The unification of the Arabian Peninsula under Islam supercharged long-distance trade across Eurasia, one primary reason being that the Red Sea and Gulf routes connecting the Mediterranean and Indian Ocean were now working in concert rather than in competition. We've also discussed the perennial difficulty that imperial states in the Muslim heartland have had in managing their unity. The reliance on mercenary armies paid in taxation rights, or ICTA, siphoned away the agrarian revenue that formed the base of support for states in the region. We have seen various attempts to maintain or restore unity of the empire. The Umayyads, with Arabian and tribal identity, or supremacy, and the politics of tribal coalitions. The Abbasids, with the welding of stately and religious authority, which raised the question of sectarianism. The particularism of the Shi'i century, responding to the failure of Sunni imperialism. And finally, the Seljuk period, with an embrace of, or perhaps resignation to, decentralization and warlordism, despite the efforts of the vizier Nizam ul-Mulk to revive the ancient Persian bureaucracy. It's at this moment of vulnerability, disorder, and disintegration in the 11th century that crusaders from the west appear, and not long after, the world-conquering Mongols from the east. Why did these invaders come to the Muslim lands? How did the Muslims respond? What sort of impact did the events of this period have on the region and the world system at large? Today, we'll answer these questions and finally meet the Mamluks. But let's begin with the Crusaders. Why did Northern Europeans appear on the Syrian-Palestinian coast in the 11th and 12th centuries, bearing crosses sewn into the backs of their clothes and willing to endure incredible hardship in order to establish kingdoms in the Holy Land? The key to understanding this lies in the transition in Western Europe from Roman imperial hegemony to feudalism. Let's roll back the clock to the fall of the Roman Empire and briefly trace the development of feudalism and see if we can uncover the motives behind the Crusades. Rome had long sourced slave labor for its agricultural states from the Germanic tribes to the north and east of Italy. Beginning in the second century and continuing through the fifth, the empire's hold on this frontier region began to weaken and a number of its Germanic tribes invaded the central imperial lands. Gauls, Vandals, Visigoths, and Lombards wrested territory away from Rome, and this western half of the empire crumbled apart. 
Over the next centuries, the tribe's Germanic traditions melded with the heritage of Imperial Rome, creating a highly decentralized and diverse political arrangement across Europe. These new formations were much degraded in terms of sophistication and performance when compared to the time of Rome that came before it, and for this reason the period is known as the Dark Ages. In the 9th century, Charlemagne briefly unified the region once more under the Holy Roman Empire, but after his death, incursions by Magyars from the east and Vikings from the north put a decisive end to any other similar efforts. It's at this time, beginning in northwestern Europe, that we start to see feudalism develop as the continent's dominant social formation. Perry Anderson describes the situation in this way. The countryside of France, in particular, became crisscrossed with private castles and fortifications, erected by rural seigneurs without an imperial permission, to withstand the new barbarian attacks and dig in their local power. The new Castellar landscape was both a protection and a prison for the rural population. The peasantry, already falling into increasing subjugation in the last years of Charlemagne's rule, were now finally thrust down to generalized serfdom. Feudalism slowly solidified across northwestern Europe in the next two centuries. It's significant that feudalism solidified away from the coasts, and we see revived trading centers around the castles of the warlords, or within the protected radii of the monasteries where the especially important overland or river routes crossed. Merchants making use of these trading hubs were offered protection by the lords in exchange for their commercial services. Let's take a minute to describe these European markets. After the collapse of Rome and the empire-spanning trade network, the markets of Europe functioned very similarly to the traveling periodic markets of North Africa, which we mentioned in our first episode and they did so for similar reasons. The sparse population, the low level of development, and the poor system of transport. In Northern Europe, sites known as fairs served as staging grounds for the traveling markets. Fairs were held on a weekly basis, and the day of the fair was a special day of gathering for an otherwise isolated people. Agriculturalists within walking or donkey radius would bring in their produce or animals, barbers would set up their chairs, Cooked foods and tea were sold from special stalls, and scribes offered their services in writing letters or filling out documents for the illiterate clientele. Tinsmiths and other repairmen would lay out their spare parts and tools in preparation for jobs, and specialized craftpersons, like the women tent and rug weavers, as well as potters and others, would fish for customers in the crowd. Animal sales, slaughtering, and butchering were located on the periphery of the market, while food stalls and foreign traders hawking high-value goods, like cloth, manufactured items, and silver jewelry, were closer to the center. These goods were too precious to be laid on the ground, and instead these merchants had their own stalls. The weekly event would last until the sunset, at which time the people of the fair would have a fortifying glass of tea, pack up their things, and head home. By the 10th century, the Vikings had been turned back and feudalism had become fully entrenched in northern Europe. And by the 11th century, northwestern Europe began developing greater integration and an ability to produce a larger surplus for exchange. The stability engendered under feudalism led to the institutionalization of the fairs 
as merchants could reliably meet one another and make arrangements on those assumptions. This enabled the inclusion of long-distance trade, which created a need for money changers and money markets. For this, the Northern Europeans would turn to the Italians, who had maintained a high level of mercantile sophistication throughout the so-called Dark Ages. In particular, the maritime trading cities of Pisa, Genoa, and Venice had flourished all the while. These Italian city-states, especially Venice, had resisted incorporation into Charlemagne's domains and were much closer to the Byzantines and the Mediterranean world than they were to the goings-on in Northern Europe. The Italian ports never lost their connection with the East and maintained intense trade with Byzantine Anatolia, as well as with Mesopotamia, Egypt, and Africa. And through them, they had access to the global trade network that arose around the Muslim Empire. Eastern Christians and Muslims operated within institutional arrangements that facilitated long-distance trade and cross-societal trade, and Italians learned a lot from them. We know that Italians employed the gold currencies of Constantinople and Egypt, which is an indication of their subsidiary and semi-peripheral status in world trade. And we also know that many instruments of capitalism had already been developed and used by merchants in the Muslim world before Europeans adopted them or developed their own versions. For example, we know that Sumerians and Sassanids used banks, checks, and bills of exchange far before the advent of Islam. Commenda contracts, an early form of limited partnership in which investors entrust capital to an agent in hopes of his trading it for a profit, were developed in Italy in the 10th century, and their analog, the kirad, had long been a traditional practice in caravan trade, at least by the time of Islam's rise, if not before. Indeed, the Prophet Muhammad himself may have been a kirad agent for his future wife Khadija prior to his prophetic mission. After the rise of Islam, we see both simple joint partnerships, known as Sharikat al-Milk, and contractual or commercial partnerships, Sharikat al-Aqt, widely employed in the Muslim world. In particular, the Sharikat al-Aqt, in which money, goods, and labor could be invested with shared risk by all parties, was the dominant form of business organization. Unlike the Komenda, where one party provides the capital and the other provides the labor, in Sharikat al-Aqt, the capital primarily consists of the labor of both partners. We know that buying and selling on credit was widespread, and that it funded both trade and industry, and that the recording of contracts by both partners was very common. Overall, we see that partnerships in production and commerce, as well as the use of credit across the Muslim world, was commonplace and predates similar developments in Europe by a large margin. The Italians were ready apprentices to this knowledge and put it to work in the money markets of Europe. The Italians were also indispensable to Northern Europeans because they offered spices and silks from the Orient, either from North Africa and the Middle East, or from the Far East through Muslim intermediaries. Documents show that North Africa provided alum, which is important for dyes, as well as wax, leather and fur, cumin and dates, and mostly to Genoa, while Muslim Spain sent honey, olive oil, almonds, raisins, figs, and silks. The Middle East exported pepper, Brazil wood, feathers, damask cloth, and elaborately embossed and inlaid metal objects whereas gold and silk cloth came from China via Tartary. The most precious cargo of all was the exotic spices from India, obtained through Arab intermediaries. 
saffron, cinnamon, nutmeg, mace, citron, licorice, cloves, ginger, cardamom, cumin, and black and white pepper. Also of great importance to the textile trade, alum, indigo, rose matter root, and other natural dyes. Meanwhile, the Italians had little to offer but their own local production of salt, fish, and timber, as well as captured slaves from non-Christian neighbors. As controllers of the money markets and workings of credit, as well as of the foreign trade, the Italian city-states were in a powerful position when the Crusades begin and the European trade in the Mediterranean kicks into high gear. However, even before the Crusades began, it should be noted that Genoa was effectively already at war with the Muslims in Spain and Egypt by the 10th century. In 934 to 935, the Egyptian Fatimids sacked Genoa. And in 1061, Genoa sent expeditions against Muslims in Sardinia and Corsica, later even capturing the old Fatimid capital of Mahdia in 1087 and extracted tribute and trade concessions from its rulers. In 1080, the Venetians broke the Norman blockade of the Adriatic and forged an alliance with the Byzantines, which enabled trade with the broader world system through Constantinople. Two years later, the Byzantine Emperor Alexius I granted a special charter, the Golden Bull, to Venice for full trading privileges and exemptions from tolls. Genoa, in control of the western Mediterranean, was eager to break into the Levant while Venice was careful to maintain its connection to the global trade system through Constantinople. Then, in 1095, the Pope calls for the First Crusade, aiming for the conquest of Palestine. The lords of northwestern Europe respond with great enthusiasm. Counts from Champagne, Brie, and Flanders, all of which hosted major fairs, as well as the kings of France and England, all set off on crusading missions. The crusaders include thousands of women, children, and old men in rags, in addition to soldiers and ambitious noblemen. All of them wore strips of cloth sewn into their backs of their clothes in the shape of a cross. These first crusaders sacked Greek churches, European synagogues, and they pillaged Christian villages throughout Byzantium as they made their way to Jerusalem. It's interesting to note that these northern feudal Europeans take the land route, avoiding the sea route via the Mediterranean. Although later crusaders would rely entirely on Italian ships, and this is an indication that the crusades united an otherwise bifurcated Europe. The motivating factors for the crusades are numerous. There was the endemic violence in feudal Europe, as well as the primogeniture laws, which had the effect of creating men without land, but with access to military training and mercenaries, and the Crusades operating as a unifying resolution to a conflict between secular and religious authority. Whatever their actual motivations, the Crusading armies fought with incredible will and perseverance. They suffered tremendous hardship on their campaigns. A lack of logistical organization led to starvation, which in turn led to cannibalism, as well as the drinking of their own urine and blood of their mounts in order to survive. Eventually, they best the disorganized and uncooperating polities of the Muslim heartland and capture cities along the Syrian and Palestinian coast. Upon arrival in the Middle East, the Crusaders copied many facets of Muslim culture, but the Muslims did not copy them back. The Europeans were far less developed 
and were viewed as barbarians. In fact, Europeans openly envied Muslims because, quote, they knew even better than the French how to live. Muslims viewed Franks as, quote, beasts superior in courage and fighting ardor, but in nothing else, just as animals are superior in strength and aggression. Population growth explodes in Europe during the 12th century, and the Italians end up dominating the Mediterranean. The Genoese and Pisans are rewarded for their support with portions of Crusader cities, including Acre and Jerusalem. Once the Crusades appeared clearly successful, the Venetians also joined in and obtained portions of Tyre and Ascalon for themselves. The role of the Italian merchant mariner cities had now changed from a passive one to an active one. The demand for eastern goods in Europe skyrocketed, and shipping across the Mediterranean increased massively. Europe had reintegrated itself into the global trade network and the world system that had developed around Islamic empire. They gained access to spices, silk cloth and brocades, damascene blades, porcelain, and a variety of other luxury goods that were previously exceedingly rare, if non-existent, in their homelands. Initially, they had little to offer of their own besides slaves, precious metals, especially silver, and wood and furs, but they now began to produce fine woolen cloth made from the fleece of sheep to sell in the eastern markets. This situation lasts until 1291, and we will revisit that later on. Now let's pivot to the other side of the Muslim Empire and ask, why did the Mongols come to Muslim lands? The Mongol Empire arose from a different kind of socio-economic base than the agrarian empires of the Nile to Oxus or Europe. Instead, Mongol society was nomadic pastoralist in nature. Marshall Hodgson says that nomadic pastoralist societies had developed wherever peasant agriculture did not find the terrain or the political resources to establish or maintain itself. The pastoralist society of the Arabian Peninsula had been closely dependent upon the surrounding city land, as we have noticed. The pastoralist society of the Eurasian steppes was built on a vaster scale and was more complexly related to agrarian societies. The steppes were on the whole better watered than Arabia. The steppe nomads made greater use of horses than of camels and were perhaps more self-contained. Nevertheless, the steppe nomads did engage in constant trade throughout their terrain from the north of the Black Sea to the north of China, which depended on the goods of the cultivators and townsmen. Especially they were involved in the interregional trade that passed across Central Asia from China to various termini at the western end. It was in part constant mutual rivalry for grazing lands, but at least as much direct and indirect relations with the great trade routes that kept the various tribal formations astir and led them into large-scale adventures. Sometimes these nomadic tribal groups united under a single leadership, which empowered them to dominate and extract tribute from settled towns, but these formations were highly unstable. The general pattern can be described like this. First, there is an increase and spread of city agrarian life, most typically in China. This creates more opportunity for nomadic raiders, which in turn facilitates the organization of larger nomadic formations. After a certain point, 
the large agrarian governments become intolerant of the increased intensity of raiding and respond by breaking up these formations, either through military means or diplomatic negotiations. At times of agrarian weakness, nomadic tribes could dominate large swaths of territory over northern China and the Central Asian steppe. And when we speak of tribes and tribal formations, we should understand that this does not imply less hierarchy, less stratification, or less sophistication when compared with agrarian societies. Instead, we should understand it as a reflection of an alternative economic base. That is to say, ranging pastoralism and not settled agrarianism. Nomads, much like the agrarian formations of the Nile to Oxus region we have seen so far, were organized into hierarchies of a few revenue-extracting aristocratic families, with a garrison class of enforcers beneath them, and the producers of wealth at the bottom, in this case mostly pastoralists and semi-pastoralists. The earliest nomadic states have their origins in the Chinese borderlands, arising as a response to Chinese expansionism, and they generally did not distance themselves very much from these origins, even as they moved westward. The Khazar Khaganate, which stood from 630 to 965, remained close to Turk traditions despite deep involvement with both the Byzantine and Islamic empires and played an important role in east-west as well as north-south trade in its time. However, by the 12th century, it so happened that no Chinese or Muslim state held sway over Central Asia. At that time, the tribal formations of the region, for example the Karakhanids, were divided and rather tamed by close contact and association with urban populations. It is into this fragmented political landscape of competing aristocratic houses that Temujin is born, into the Borjigin clan of the Kamag Mongol Confederation. Sources are scant regarding the early life of the Genghis Khan, whose birth name Temujin means blacksmith in Turko-Mongol and was taken from a Tatar chief his father had captured. He had a hard childhood despite his noble background. We relied to a large extent on the Secret History of the Mongols, a text written after his rise to power that provides us with a semi-mythical account. Its first line reads as such, Genghis Khan was born with his destiny ordained by heaven above. At the age of nine, his father had arranged a marriage for Temujin with a girl, Borte, from another tribe, the Khonigirads. He was sent to live there, and serve the head of household until he reached the marriageable age of 12. While in service of the Konigurads, Temujin's father is poisoned by the Tatars and he dies. Temujin hears of this and leaves the Konigurads to return home, claiming his father's position as chief. However, the tribe rejects Temujin and abandons him and his family without their protection. Temujin and his family, including his mother, three brothers and two half-brothers, live in dire poverty for several years, scraping by a meager existence on whatever can be found on the steppe. Wild fruits, ox carcasses, marmots, and other small game. During this time, Temujin's mother Holun teaches her sons about Mongol politics, about the disunity between different clans and the need for arranged marriages to solidify tribal alliances, and oppresses upon them the idea that strong alliances would ensure the stability of Mongolia. Temujin's older half-brother Behter 
begins to exercise power as the oldest male of the family. But during a hunting trip, Behter is slain by Temujin and his brother Kassar, an early sign of Temujin's ruthless pursuit of power. Later, Temujin is captured in a raid by a tribe that had formerly been his father's allies, and they enslave and humiliate him, shackling him in a kind of portable stocks known as a kang. One night, thanks to a sympathetic guard, he is able to escape and hide out in a river crevice. From then on, Temujin goes about gathering an enthusiastic following, standing up to the prevailing leaders of the community, and after a series of military successes, is enthroned as the leader of his father's people, in roughly 1185. One of these campaigns involved saving his wife Borte from the Merkits, a northern tribe and traditional rival of the Mongols, with the aid of his childhood friend Jamuka. He consolidates power by persuading defection or defeating his internal rivals, but is faced by a competitor, his old friend Jamuka, who is similarly amassing his own allies of disgruntled Mongols. Although Jamuka's camp supports the old aristocratic traditions and Temujin's was more of a meritocratic, reformist sort of thing. Temujin delegated authority on merit and loyalty rather than family ties, and he promised civilians and soldiers wealth from future war spoils. Instead of driving away the tribes he defeated, he took them under his protection and incorporated them into his own. He even had his mother adopt the orphans of these tribes, bringing them into his family. Eventually, the tension between Temujin and Jamuka breaks when Jamuka is elected Gurkhan, the universal Khan, and Temujin declares war on him. Coalitions of tribes consolidate behind either the traditionalist Gurkhan Jamuka or the upstart reformer Temujin. The secret history sets a dramatic scene for us. Temujin and Jamuka meet alone on the field of battle and exchange heartfelt words. Temujin says, Now the two of us are united. Let us be companions. If we become each of us like one of the two shafts of a cart, would you think of separating yourself from me and being on your own? Now that we are together once more, let us remind the other of what he has forgotten. Let us each wake up the other who has fallen asleep. Although you separated from me and went a different way, you remain my lucky, blessed, sworn friend. On the day one kills and is killed, surely your heart was aching for me. Although you separated from me and went a different way, on the day one fights one another, your lungs and heart were aching for me. Jamuka responds, In early days, when we were small, in the Korkanak Valley, I agreed with my sworn friend the Khan to become sworn friends. Together we ate food that is not to be digested. To each other we spoke words that are not to be forgotten. Together we were under our blanket, sharing it between us, but stirred up by someone coming between us, pricked by someone, standing at the side, we parted for good. Saying to myself that we had exchanged weighty words, the skin of my black face peeled off in shame and so I have been living unable to come near you, unable to see the friendly face of my sworn friend, the Khan. Saying to myself that we had exchanged unforgettable words, the skin of my red face came off in shame, and so I have been living unable to see the true face of my sworn friend with a long memory. Now my sworn friend, the Khan, shows favor to me and says, Let us be companions. 
but when it was the time for being companions, I was not one. Now, sworn friend, you have pacified all our people. You have unified all other peoples, and the Khan's throne has been assigned to you. Now that the world is at your disposal, of what use would I be as a companion to you? On the contrary, O oh my sworn friend, I would intrude into your dreams in the dark night. I would trouble your heart in the bright day. I would be a louse in your collar. I would be a thorn in the inner lapel of your coat. I had many paternal grandmothers. When I became disloyal to my sworn friend, I made a mistake. Now in this life, that of the sworn friend and me, my fame has passed from sunrise to sunset. You, sworn friend, had a wise mother. You were born a hero, and as you had younger brothers, valiant companions, and 73 geldings, you, my sworn friend, excelled me. As for me, I lost my parents when I was small and had no younger brothers. My wife is a prattler, my companions untrustworthy. Because of this, I was excelled by my sworn friend, whose destiny was ordained by heaven. If you want to show favor to me, let me die swiftly, and your heart will be at rest. And if you condescend to have me put to death, let them kill me without shedding blood. When I lie dead, my bones buried in a high place, forever and ever I shall protect you and be a blessing to the offspring of your offspring. In origin I am of a different birth, and so I was conquered by the august spirit of my sworn friend who is of higher birth. Do not forget the words that I have just spoken. Think of them evening and morning, and repeat them among yourselves. Now do away with me quickly. Temujin responds by saying that Jamukha is a man who should learn from experience, but he does not. However, to harm him is not in accordance with the omens, and as a man of high standing, he should be given a fitting burial. He reiterates that he has offered Jamukha companionship and been refused. He has offered to spare his life, but his old friend declined. Now, he says, according to your request, you shall die without your blood being shed. He has Jamukha executed on the spot and his body buried as arranged. By 1206, Temujin has eliminated all rivals for power and united the tribes by oaths of loyalty. He assembles a Kurultai, a grand assembly of nobles, and therein is elected leader of all Mongol tribes, Genghis Khan. He officially proclaims the restoration of the Kamag Mongol Ulus, the united Mongol people, or perhaps translated as the united Mongol Empire. Genghis Khan reorganizes the military into decimal-based units of 10, 100, 1,000, and 10,000. Just as importantly, he uses his authority to redistribute their manpower among the new military units along non-tribal lines. This system of decimal units had existed for a very long time in Central Asia, but Genghis Khan is credited for using it along non-tribal lines for the first time. This ensured the soldiers' loyalty to the empire over their tribe. Additionally, he grants leadership positions to his Nokur clients, a relationship that resembles the Maula of the Arabs that we've discussed previously. In addition to his military reforms, Genghis Khan promulgated the Yasa, 
a set of governing laws which, in this case, instituted very specific regulations about the duties and rights of commanders and soldiers, as well as rules regarding military training and the basics of penal law. We can see that Genghis Khan was not only an enforcer of law, but also a lawgiver. Aisha Zaratol, uh, author of Before the West, writes this. Genghis Khan established a juridical authority meant to enforce the new order and supervise its administration. The chief judge was asked to register his decisions and Genghis's legal decrees in a blue register, thereby creating a body of precedence for future use. These regulations built upon antecedents from Mongol customary law, Tore, but were portrayed even by critical contemporaries such as Juaini as being at least partly invented by Genghis from the pages of his own mind without the toil of pursuing records or the trouble of confirming with tradition. This claim to a type of authority by the ruler to make laws from scratch unchecked by tradition or religion, as well as the demographic group that traditionally was held to have the authority to decide on the correct interpretation, was a major innovation for the 13th century that would have repercussions for sedentary polities conquered by the Mongols, as most of them at that point had developed complicated social or bureaucratic systems that diffused or checked the power of the rulers. the United Mongol army first strikes out into northern China, and by 1215 has conquered its major nomadic polities, extracting tribute from them in traditional raider nomad fashion. In this early phase of the empire, sedentary societies were still regarded as sources of booty and technical specialists, such as artisans. The Mongols did not yet conceive of any permanent exploitation of conquered sedentary societies. Next, his attention turned westward, towards Khwarezmia. He first sought to establish trading connections with the wealthy cities on the Silk Road, and sent a 500-man caravan loaded with gold, silver, silk, and various kinds of textiles and pelts to trade with the Muslims of Central Asia. One of the kingdom's governors, however, attacked the caravan, claiming that it contained spies. The Mongols responded not with violence, but by sending three ambassadors, two Mongols and one Muslim, to go to the Shah directly, ignoring the governor. The Shah, however, had the men shaved, and the Muslim from them was beheaded, and they sent his head back with the other two ambassadors. This outraged the Genghis Khan, and he amassed nearly all of his military forces to confront the Khwarezmians. Jack Weatherford, in uh, Genghis Khan and the Making of the Modern World, describes the events of 1219 like this. When Genghis Khan dropped down on the cities of Khwarezm, he commanded an army of about 100,000 to 125,000 horsemen, supplemented by Uyghur and other Turkic allies, a corps of Chinese doctors, and engineers for a total of 150,000 to 200,000 men. By comparison, the ruler of Khwarezmia had some 400,000 men under arms across his empire, and they were fighting with the home advantage on their own territory. The Mongols promised justice to those who surrendered, but they swore destruction to those who resisted. 
if the people accepted and acted as relatives should by reciprocating their offer of kinship by offering food, then the Mongols would treat them as family members with a guarantee of protection and certain basic familial rights. If they refused, they would be treated as enemies. Genghis Khan's offer to the besieged was as simple as it was horrifying. Commanders, elders, and commonality. Know that God has given me the empire of the earth from the east to the west. Whoever submits shall be spared, but those who resist, they shall be destroyed with their wives, children, and dependents. The same sentiment found expression in many documents of the era. One of the clearest in the Armenian chronicle that quotes Genghis Khan is saying that, quote, It is the will of God that we take the earth and maintain order to impose Mongol law and taxes, and to those who refused them, the Mongols were obligated to slay them and destroy their place, so that others who hear and see should fear and not act the same. They conquered the Shadam in a matter of months. Some of Genghis Khan's initial conquests against the weak nomadic polities of Central Asia were welcomed by its inhabitants, such as in his defeat of Guchulug, a Christian married to a Buddhist princess who was forcibly converting his Muslim subjects. Others fought hard, but only the hardiest lasted longer than a few months. He constantly innovated and learned from his mistakes, constantly developed his strategy. After a chaotic plundering experience in Zhongzhou in northern China, he had instituted a more efficient system of first emptying the city of all people and animals before beginning to loot thereby minimizing the danger to his men as they plundered. Standard protocol became, first, kill all the soldiers, and then the rich and the powerful. They had little use for infantrymen, and they did not want to leave armies of former enemies blocking their route back to the Mongolian homeland. The enemy aristocrats were regarded as potential problems to be eliminated, not objects of ransom as in the Middle East and Europe. Second, Divide the civilians by profession. Valued civilians were those with skills besides war, herding, or hunting. And this included literate people of any language, such as clerks, doctors, astronomers, judges, soothsayers, engineers, teachers, imams, rabbis, and priests. They also valued merchants, cameliers, polyglots and craftsmen, as well as smiths, potters, carpenters, furniture makers, musicians, weavers, leather workers, dyers, miners, paper makers, glass blowers, tailors, jewelers, barbers, singers, entertainers, apothecaries, and cooks. Non-professional civilians were collected to help attack the next city by carrying cargo loads, digging fortifications, and serving as human shields, or being pushed into moats as fill. Those who did not qualify for any of these tasks were simply slaughtered and left behind. The Mongols were unstoppable. Their reputation spread like prairie fire, and many cities simply surrendered upon contact with them. By 1225, they were poised for an invasion of Europe from Hungary. However, the Great Khan suddenly dies from illness while on campaign in China. All of the nomadic empire's military campaigns are halted, and his sons return to Mongolia for the burial and distribution of inheritance, 
the empire is split between Genghis Khan's four sons. His grandson Batu, who is the son of his already dead son Jochi, is assigned the Russian and Eastern European zone. Chaghatai is assigned Persia and Iraq. Toloi is assigned the Mongolian homeland, the most prestigious and politically important zone in the eyes of the Mongols. And finally, Ogodei is assigned the Chinese zone and crowned the true successor Khan. After this division of land, the military campaigns continue. Batu conquers what is now southern Russia, Poland, and Austria, and he only stops a few miles from Vienna. Chaghatai leads the White Horde from the steppe deep into Muslim lands. The Crusaders attempt to ally with the Mongols in hopes of sparing themselves and safeguarding their newfound access to wealth, and they send requests from the Pope that the Mongols convert to Christianity and join forces with them against the Muslims. The Mongols were already acquainted with Christianity through Nestorianism. In fact, Genghis Khan's mother may have been Nestorian. But they reject the offer and demand the Pope submit to the Khan instead. The Crusaders and Mongols have minimal engagement with one another from then on, although one European becomes quite famous in documenting his experiences in Mongol China, Marco Polo. After only a few decades, like his father, Ogode suddenly dies, although this appears to be from an excess of fermented mare's milk, the Mongols' intoxicant of choice, rather than from illness. In 1251, a new Khan is elected, Monke. Most of Monke's efforts go towards administrative reform and consolidation of the empire, although his brother Kublai Khan, ruling in China, is able to unite northern and southern China under the Yuan dynasty. The lands under Mongol control, most of the known world at this time, experience what can be called a Pax Mongolica, a period of sustained stability and security that allowed for trade and prosperity. At this time, the Mongols hold southern Russia and eastern Anatolia under the control of Burke Khan, and under Hulegu, the Ilkhanid dynasty controls most of our uh, Nile to Oxus region, except for Syria and Egypt. And meanwhile, Kublai Khan remains in control of a unified China. The Mongols begin to assimilate into Muslim and Chinese culture respectively, and eventually the empire begins to fragment as disparate interests and conflicts arise, dashing hopes of an overland Central Asian trade route to rival the Indian Ocean Sea route. The one holdout in the Muslim heartland remaining was Egypt. As we have discussed previously, Egypt fell under the control of the Sunni Ayyubids, who maintained a garrison of highly effective Turkic, primarily Kipchak, Mamluk slave soldiers. This army defeated the French king Louis IX in 1250 when they attempted to land 600 knights on the Egyptian coast. Only a handful of them escaped. A Syrian chronicler from the period, Ibn Wasil, recounts the story like this. The emir Fakhr al-Din was in his bath when they came and told him the news. Flabbergasted, he immediately leapt into the saddle, without armor or coat of mail, and rushed to see what the situation was. He was attacked by a troop of enemy soldiers who killed him. The king of the Frange entered the city, and even entered the sultan's palace. His soldiers poured through the streets, while the Muslim soldiers and the inhabitants sought salvation in disordered flight. 
Islam seemed mortally wounded, and the Frange were about to reap the fruit of their victory when the Mamluk Turks arrived. Since the enemy had dispersed through the streets, these horsemen rushed bravely in pursuit. Everywhere the Frange were taken by surprise and massacred with sword or mace. At the start of the day, the pigeons had carried a message to Cairo and announcing the attack of the Frange without breathing a word about the outcome of the battle, so we were all waiting anxiously. Throughout the quarters of the city, there was sadness, until the next day, when new messages told us of the victory of the Turkish lions. The streets of Cairo became a festival. Shortly thereafter, the French king's campaign falls apart and he is captured by the Ayyubids for ransom. A dispute breaks out between the Ayyubid Sultan, Turan Shah, and the chief Mamluk officers in his army. The Mamluks believed that Egypt owed them their salvation for obtaining victory from the Franks and therefore demanded a decisive role in the leadership of the country. The Ayyubid Sultan wanted to use the prestige of the victory to place his loyal supporters in posts of responsibility instead. Unable to accept this, a 40-year-old Turkish crossbowman Baybars leads a conspiracy against the Sultan. At the end of a banquet organized by the Sultan on May 2nd in 1260, the Mamluks revolt. Turan Shah is wounded in the shoulder by Baybars and attempts to flee along the banks of the Nile but he is captured by the Mamluk officers. He begs for his life, promising to leave Egypt and renounce his claim to power if he is spared, but he is finished off mercilessly. An envoy of the caliphs has to intervene in order to ensure a proper burial for him as a Muslim. The Mamluks seem to have surprised themselves by the position they found themselves in. They are initially hesitant to take power directly and instead place a queen on the throne. Ibn Wasil describes the situation like this. After the assassination of Turan Shah, the emirs and Mamluks met near the Sultan's pavilion and decided that Shajar al-Dur, a wife of Sultan Ayyub, would be placed in power, becoming queen and sultana. She took charge of the affairs of the state, establishing a royal seal in her name inscribed with the formula Um Khalil, mother of Khalil, a child of hers who had died at an early age. In all the mosques, the Friday sermon was delivered in the name of Um Khalil, Sultana of Cairo and of all Egypt. This was unprecedented in the history of Islam. I would just like to make a quick note here that the Fatimids before the Ayyubids had long since established the practice of delivering Friday sermons in the name of local sovereigns, and in fact this spread throughout the Muslim world after the fact. The innovation made note of here is that the sovereign was a woman. The Mamluks release King Louis as previously arranged for a ransom of one million dinars. Historian Amin Malouf, in Crusades Through Arab Eyes, writes, The French sovereign was indeed released several days after the accession to power of Umm Khalil, but not before being treated to a lecture by the Egyptian negotiators. How could a sensible, wise, and intelligent man like you embark on a sea voyage to a land peopled by countless Muslims? According to our law, 
a man who crosses the sea in this way cannot testify in court. And why not? asked the king. Because, came the reply, it is assumed that he is not in possession of all his faculties. Shajar al-Dur and her husband Ibeg rule for seven years before they finally kill each other in April 1257. Maluf writes, There have been many conflicting versions of the end of their rule. The one favored by popular storytellers is a mix of love and jealousy spiced with political ambition. The Sultana, it says, was bathing her husband as was her custom. Taking advantage of this moment of detente and intimacy, she scolded the Sultan for having taken a pretty 14-year-old girl slave as his concubine. Do I no longer please you, she murmured, to soften his heart. But Ibeg answered sharply, She is young, while you are not. Shajar al-Dur trembled with rage at these words. She rubbed soap in her husband's eyes, while whispering conciliatory words to allay any suspicion, and then suddenly seized a dagger and stabbed him in the side. Ibeg collapsed. The Sultana remained immobile for some moments, as if paralyzed. Then, heading for the door, she summoned several faithful slaves, who she thought would dispose of the body for her. But to her misfortune, one of Ibeg's sons, who was fifteen at the time, noticed that the bath water, flowing through the outside drain, was red. He ran into the room and saw Shajar al-Dur standing half-naked near the door, still holding a blood-stained dagger. She fled through the corridors of the palace, pursued by her stepson, who alerted the guards. Just as they caught up with her, the sultana stumbled and fell, crashing her head violently against a marble slab. By the time they reached her, she was dead. Ibeg's young son does in fact replace them on the throne. And it's around this time that Hulegu of the Mongols descends upon Baghdad. The appearance of the Mongols north of Baghdad caused a large force to be called to defend the city of the Caliph, supposedly numbering 50,000 troops, but they are poorly equipped and undisciplined. The Caliph warns the Mongols that any attack upon the city would mobilize the entire Muslim world from India to northwest Africa, all against them. The Mongols were not impressed, and they launched the assault anyways, destroying the assassin's fortress in Alamut along the way. The city falls easily to the Mongol forces, and contemporary sources depict wanton looting and massacres. As many as 80 or 90,000 people are massacred in the sack of the city, although this excludes its Christian population who are spared at the request of Hulagu's Nestorian wife. Countless mosques, palaces, libraries, and temples are destroyed. The famous House of Wisdom, the Beit al-Hikmah, a massive complex of observatories and libraries and engineering labs, is destroyed, and the caliph himself is either trampled beneath the Mongols' horses and his body rolled up in a rug to prevent royal blood from spilling and offending the earth, or strangled to death. Whatever his method of departure, the death of the caliph shocks the Muslim world and marks the struggle against the Mongols as a struggle for the survival of Islam itself. It also marks a decisive end to the golden age of Islam and almost entirely collapses the legitimacy of the caliph as even a symbolic head of Islam.
the Mongol conquest of Iraq and Persia also breaks the connection between the Gulf and the Indian Ocean, inhibiting trade through that route, leading the Red Sea route to dominate for centuries to come. The Mongols continue westward into Syria. The threat of the Mongols leads the Mamluk officers to depose the 15-year-old Sultan in Cairo, placing one of their own commanders, Saif ad-Din Qutuz, in charge. He speaks in terms of holy war and calls for a general mobilization against the enemy of Islam, the Mongol army, and promises the emirs that they could install any other sultan they want after he defeats the Mongol menace. Qutuz himself had been captured by the Mongols during the failed defense of Khwarezmia, and then taken to Damascus and sold to an Egyptian slave merchant, who in turn sold him to the Ayyubid Sultan. Baibars, at odds with Qutuz, tries to warn the Ayyubid ruler of Syria, al-Nasr Yusuf, to rally his forces against the impending Mongol invasion, but al-Yasr Yusuf wants to surrender instead. Baibars is enraged at this display of cowardice and attempts to kill him, but al-Nasr Yusuf escapes. Baibars then realizes that Syria is doomed and he heads back to Cairo to make peace with the reigning Sultan Qutuz. The Mongols then defeat the Syrians, as Baibars foresaw, and then they go on to take the Palestinian cities of Nablus and Gaza, putting them only a stone's throw away from Cairo. Hulagu sends an emissary to Cairo, demanding surrender. The Mamluks reply by beheading that messenger. And it's at this moment that the supreme Khan of the Mongols, Monke, dies. A power struggle over territorial claims within the Mongol aristocracy breaks out and Hulagu retreats from Syria, leaving behind only a few thousand horsemen. He leads a campaign in northwest Iran in the Caucasus against the emerging Golden Horde, led by his cousin Burke Khan, a devout Muslim who had maintained a friendship with the late Abbasid Caliph that Hulagu had just killed. The Mamluks recognize their opportunity and strike quickly seizing Gaza and securing a passageway through Syria, including through Crusader territory, as their leaders were to some extent supportive of the Mamluk defense against the fearsome Mongols. But it's not long before the Mamluks have to confront the Mongols face to face on the field of battle. In the fall of 1260, the Mongol troops are busied with putting down a popular insurrection in Damascus, where people had built barricades in the streets and set fire to those churches that had been spared by the Mongols. Qutuz uses that time to consolidate his position in the Galilee, surrounding the city. Once the Mongols had taken care of the revolt, they set out to meet the Mamluks. Baibars, leading only a small vanguard detachment, meets them at the village of Ain Jalut, whose name means the Fountain of Goliath in Arabic. The rest of the Mamluk troops remain concealed. The Mongols are encouraged by what appears to be easy pickings, and they launch a full-scale attack. Baibars retreats and lures the Mongol forces into a trap. They are quickly surrounded by the Mamluk forces and exterminated within a few hours. Their commander is captured and beheaded. The Mamluks then ride into Damascus on the 8th of September as liberators. The Mamluk victory at the Battle of Ain Jalut signaled the end of Mongol incursions into the Muslim heartland, and Qutuz and Baibars 
used their newfound dominance of the region to settle accounts with all those who had collaborated with either Mongol or Crusader. However, it does not take long for the old rivalry between Kutuz and Baibars to rise again to the surface. Maluf describes it so. Baibars wanted to establish himself as a semi-independent ruler in Aleppo. Uh, fearing his lieutenant's ambitions, Kutuz refused. He wanted no part of a rival regime in Syria. To nip the conflict in the bud, the Sultan assembled his army, Baibars included, and set out to return to Egypt. When he was three days march from Cairo, he gave his soldiers a day of rest. It was the 23rd of October, and he decided to spend the day at his favorite sport, hare hunting, along with the chief officers of his army. He was careful to make sure that Baibars came too, for fear that he might otherwise take advantage of the Sultan's absence to foment a rebellion. The small party left camp at first light. Two hours later, they stopped for a brief rest. An emir approached Kutuz and took his hand as if to kiss it. At that moment, Baibars drew his sword and sunk it into the Sultan's back. The two conspirators then leapt on their mounts and rode back to camp at full gallop. They sought out the Emir Akte, a elderly officer universally respected in the army, and told him, We have killed Kutuz. Akte, who did not seem particularly upset by the news, asked, Which of you killed him? Baibars did not hesitate. I did, he said. The old Mamluk then approached him invited him into the sultan's tent and bowed before him to pay him homage before long the entire army acclaimed the new sultan Baibars wastes no time as the new leader of the mamluks and sets about cleaning up the crusader states he takes two of their key strongholds antioch in 1268 and the crack de chevalier in 1271 he writes a letter to Prince Bohemond of Antioch in Tripoli. It reads like this. When we left you in Tripoli, we headed immediately for Antioch, where we arrived on the first day of the venerated month of Ramadan. As soon as we arrived, your troops came out to join the battle against us, but they were vanquished, for although they supported one another, they lacked the support of God. Be glad that you have not seen your knights lying prostrate under the hooves of horses, your palaces plundered, your ladies sold in the quarters of the city, fetching a mere dinar apiece, a dinar taken, moreover, from your own hoard. This letter will gladden your heart by informing you that God has granted you the boon of leaving you safe and sound and prolonging your life, for you were not in Antioch. Had you been there, you would now be dead, wounded, or taken prisoner. But perhaps God has spared you, only that you might submit and give proof of obedience. Bohemond proposes a truce, which Baibars accepts. The chronicler Ibn Abd al-Zahir, who actually had written the letter that Baibars sent to Bohemond, is sent as a representative of the Mamluks to seal an accord with the crusaders of Acre, and he recounts the events like this. Their king sought to temporize to obtain the best possible conditions, but I was inflexible in accordance with the directives of the Sultan. Irritated, 
the king of the Frange said to the interpreter, Tell him to look behind him. I turned around and saw the entire army of the Frange in combat formation. The interpreter added, The king reminds you not to forget the existence of this multitude of soldiers. When I did not answer, the king insisted that the interpreter ask for my response. I then asked, Can I be assured that my life will be spared if I say what I think? Yes. Well then, tell the king that there are fewer soldiers in his army than there are Frankish captives in the prisons of Cairo. The king nearly choked, then he brought the interview to a close, but he received us a short time later and concluded the truce. The kingdom of Acre eventually falls to a siege in 1291, and that is the last crusader state to be expelled. After expelling the last of the crusaders, Baibars quickly sought to secure a supply of recruits for his slave army and the administration from the steppe. Baibars made an alliance with Burke Khan of the Golden Horde, as well as agreements with Genoa and the Byzantines in order to ensure the flow of slaves from the steppe and to keep the Ilkhanids in check. He was able to move swiftly and confidently thanks to a network of spies keeping him informed of Mongols and others. Hodgson explains it thus. From his Syro-Egyptian base, he sent troops up the Nile into Nubia, down the Red Sea coasts, west into Cyrenica, into Cilicia against the surviving Armenian state there, and even took the offensive against the Mongols and their Anatolian Seljuk vassals to the north. He and most of the other Mamluk soldiery were Turks, largely from the Kipchak region north of the Black and Caspian Seas, that is, from the area of the Golden Horde, and he took pains to recruit a large new supply of slaves from the same region for his own personal army. On this force he relied in the first instance, but for a broader legitimation of his rule, he set up at Cairo a member of the Abbasid house escaped from the destruction of Baghdad as a latter-day caliph, whose servant he pretended to be. The successors of this puppet caliph won occasional titular recognition from a few other Muslim states as well, usually states that were not in close relations with the Mamluks. Maluf describes Baibars like this. Born in 1223, the new Mamluk Sultan had begun life as a slave in Syria. His first master, the Ayyubid Emir of Hama, had sold him because of some superstition, for he was unnerved by Baibars' appearance. The young slave was very dark, a giant of a man, with a husky voice, light blue eyes, and a large white spot in his right eye. The future sultan was purchased by a Mamluk officer who assigned him to Ayyub's bodyguard. There his personal qualities, and above all his complete absence of scruples, rapidly brought him to the top of the hierarchy. In opposing the Mongols, Baibars understood that Muslim disunity and over-reliance on city walls had allowed the Mongols freedom of movement and local superiority of force. 
To counter this, he had learned that fluidity of information with friends and allies as well as internal lines of communication was the key to being prepared to defend against them. He named his intelligence service with the Persian term Barid, the same name for the intelligence service that Nizam al-Muk had attempted to resurrect under the Seljuks. But his system borrowed heavily from the Mongolian Yam, a postal and messenger service built around relay stations equipped with supplies of food, shelter, and spare horses. As a military commander, he sought to play to his strengths, the strong core of heavy horsemen, and the Mongols' limited routes of advance into Egypt, and he sought to deny the Mongols their advantages, their mobility, and their numbers. He rebuilt the region's fortification systems, dismantling the crusader castles and reinforcing border fortresses along the Euphrates, which bordered the Mongol Ilkhanate and effectively held them at bay. Had the Mongols passed the forts, their garrisons were on strict orders to retreat and face them as a unified body in order to prevent the Mongols from isolating garrisons and picking them off one by one as they had done in Khwarezmia and elsewhere. He had also learned to send out his troops immediately after a Mongol attack to shoo away smaller raiding parties and re-establish his authority over the civilian population. Baibar has also expanded the ranks of the army, both the elite Mamluk slave soldiers and the Halka, the free men, who were native Egyptians, Kurds, Turkic auxiliaries, or sons of Mamluks, and who would grow to dominate the body over the 14th century and fill roles prouder Mamluks refused to. Let's turn to Marshall Hodgson once again. He says, Baibars did not found a dynasty, but rather established an oligarchic regime, in which other sultans followed the pattern he had set. The great emirs among these freedmen soldiers each proceeded to build his power on the basis of his own corps of imported military slaves. The free-born sons of Mamluks were systematically excluded from service in the primary military bodies, though they might do some secondary military service, so that each generation of soldiery was imported afresh from the north and trained in loyalty to his own emir and his fellow soldier slaves in that emir's corps. Except from 1299 to 1382, when hereditary rule of sorts was maintained, the state was ruled by a succession of freed slaves. As a general principle, each ruler was succeeded provisionally by his son until the various corps of Mamluks jockeying for position settled, normally by fighting, whose leader should be Sultan next, and deposed the provisionally titled boy. Even during the period of hereditary sultans, during the latter part of which the sultans were mere boy puppets in the hands of some emir, and still more under the freedmen sultans, the great Mamluk emirs formed an exclusive oligarchy. No sultan dared defy them too far, even when he was furthering his concerns for the interests of the state as a whole, interests that were often given consideration by the sultan alone. Under the Mamluks, Cairo became a leading city once again. Janet Abu Lughad writes, The reduced state of Baghdad left Cairo the most important capital of the Muslim world, a fact symbolized by the re-establishment of the caliphate in that city. Baibars became the first legitimate Mamluk sultan of Egypt, 
The expulsion of the Crusader states from the coast of Syria-Palestine had forced European traders out into the islands in the Mediterranean, in particular to Crete and Cyprus. In practical terms, this meant essentially that they had access to only two functional routes to Asia. One went over land from the Black Sea, the other went through Egypt to the Indian Ocean, and was the longer but historically preferred passage. Whoever controlled the sea route to Asia could set the terms of trade for a Europe now in temporary retreat. For the rest of the 13th and indeed up to the beginning of the 16th century, that power was Egypt. The southern route through the Red Sea became the single thread connecting the two bodies of water that constituted the central axis of the then known world. As a result, Cairo, the mother city of the world, as she was described in Arab writings, flourished in the 13th, 14th, and even early 15th centuries, recovering from the ravages of recurring plagues and surviving in spite of the depredations of an extractive military caste. The Mamluks guaranteed the Italian mariner states access to their ports even at the heights of Christian Muslim animosity because they could provide a steady supply of military recruits to the slave elite. Marshall Hodgson adds, in Mamluk times, Egypt, and Cairo in particular, became the heart of the zone of Islamic culture that continued to use Arabic with little reference to Persian culture, and Egyptian men of letters played a greater role in Islamdun than heretofore. Despite a marked decrease in agricultural prosperity in the later Mamluk period, it was a splendid age for Cairo. Mamluk power and taste have been eternalized in the mosques of Cairo, most of which date from their rule. Instead of the cheaper materials previously more often used, they chose to build in stone, and their architects developed a strong sense of the beauty of well-arranged massive form. At one point, even the beloved arabesques were scarcely allowed to interfere with the monumentality of the lines. They delighted in chivalric forms, in heraldic symbols of personal prowess, in expertise at horsemanship, in the proprietaries of their incessant intestine fights. As often with chivalry, this was at the expense of the civilians of Cairo, despised and permanently excluded from power. Mamluk power correlated with the power of horsemen, and it declined quickly with the introduction of gunpowder. Hodgson explains, in the end, it cost the Mamluks themselves their prized sovereign power, despising the use of firearms, an infantry weapon at the time, as unworthy of a true horseman, they left them to despise Negro slave corps and would not allow the sultans to put many resources into them. At last, they were overwhelmed in 1517 by the field artillery of the Ottomans from Anatolia. Egypt then passed under Ottoman rule, but the bodies of Mamluks were long allowed to continue as a sort of subordinate local military aristocracy. These invasions from both east and west into the Muslim heartland had many long-lasting effects. The destruction of the caliph gave rise to what Hodgson calls the new Sunni internationalism, that is, new modes of Muslim political legitimacy that centered around new concepts, for example, the conception of leaders as Ghazi warriors who led jihad against crusaders and Mongols and other enemies of Islam, as the Mamluks did, or by placing increased importance on the Hajj and the title of the guardian of the two holy places, Mecca and Medina, 
a title which is lauded by Saudi Arabia today. And additionally, we begin to see, especially in Turkic and Persianate areas, the rise of Sufism as a political force, centered around peers or poles, spiritual guides whose authority and leadership transcended traditional politics. In the same move, this new Sunni internationalism displaced Shiism and Khurjism as alternatives. Aisha Zeratol describes the consequences of the Mongol experience. The Mongol states did, nevertheless, introduce the notions characterizing the military patronage state, which was to have a great future, and in doing so, they modified the context of the Muslim institutions. The Mongols from the first acted in a spirit of monumental achievement. They destroyed in the grand manner, but they built in the grand manner too. All this had a relatively enduring institutional residue, which we may pinpoint under three heads. First, a legitimation of independent dynastic law. Second, the conception of the whole state as a single military force. And third, the attempt to exploit all economic and high cultural resources as appendages of the chief military families. However, most of these institutional tendencies merely had their beginnings in Mongol times, which still displayed much continuity with the earlier Middle Period. Some were not fully developed until the 16th century, when the use of gunpowder weapons had given the central states and the patterns they embodied much more power. This is to say that Genghis Khan introduced an extremely high degree of political centralization, subordinating all competing forms of authority to himself and his family line. In doing so, the Chinggisids displaced, subsumed, or eliminated many other houses with ordering aspirations when they became the great house. Indeed, from 1260 to the 1350s, most of Asia was still under direct rule of Chinggisid family, divided into numerous smaller autonomous khanates. Hodgson elaborates on some of the other developments that occurred under the Mongols. To some extent from the beginning, and very extensively from the second and third generations, the energies of the Mongol leadership were directed into patronizing the arts and sciences of their various subjects. On a scale unmatched by the first Arab conquerors, indeed quite unprecedented, they rebuilt old cities or founded new ones. They repaired irrigation works and encouraged agriculture. They tried to assure free passage for merchants and opened new paths for commercial and cultural contact. And for scholars, they built observatories and libraries. One might get the impression that for the first time since the generation of Muhammad's immediate followers, the region was ruled by men who took independent achievement, action in the sense of leaving a magnificent personal impress for good or ill, as their express goal, rather than conformity to some prior ideal, either courtly or religious. So we will leave here with the Mamluks, in command of not only Egypt, but also Syria, Palestine, and Western Arabia, as well as parts of, uh, of Africa. And the Mongols in retreat, 
the Crusaders in retreat, and the rest of the Muslim world in disarray. Next episode, we will take a look at the various rise of uh, Sufi po uh, politics, which is to say uh, the Timurids in Central Asia, the Safavids in Persia, and my beloved Ottomans in Anatolia. Thanks for listening. I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. We'll catch you next time.